You know what's mad? <clears throat> For the whole of the past year, I've not had a cold or the flu, ain't been sick or nothing. And um, I had a mad toothache over, over Christmas. I had to go dentist. They gave me antibiotics. And you know you can't take antibiotics without eating. So I couldn't do my intermittent fasting. And then four or five days into not doing my intermittent fasting, I got the flu. Don't sleep on intermittent fasting. I mean, I know it's, um, what is it, when you have an objective perspective on an issue. Bias, not bias, confirmation. That's, that's not the word I'm thinking of, but not subjective. Um, I can't remember the word, but um, I also, if you know anything about me quite personally, I have um, a condition called idiopathic urticaria, and I come up in lumps and stuff like that regularly, yearly. For the past three and a half, nearly four years that I've been doing intermittent fasting, I've not had that condition. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say, if, if intermittent fasting is on your resolution list, go for it, innit? Or keto, whatever it is you're doing. Um, getting back to resolutions. How many of you know, minimizing alcohol um, consumption. If you're Christian, hopefully you got a plan um, for the practice of prayer this year. And maybe even reading through the Bible in a year. I really recommend the YouVersion Bible Project um, app because for me personally, it's been the only Bible reading program that's helped me to read my whole Bible in a year, like faithfully. So yeah, take that one or leave that. Resolutions. Um, but drilling down a little bit deeper, um, what is the reason for resolutions or the motive what is the rationale behind resolutions? Well, we make resolutions based on a reevaluation of life, don't we? Right? We make resolutions, we say, that needs adjusting, um, that needs changing, I need to stop doing this, I need to start doing that, right? Resolutions are based on reevaluation. Is that not true? And, and we do that because we have a tendency to slip back into bad habits, into harmful patterns of behavior. Now, we should be doing evaluations of ourselves at least once a month, right? Um, personal evaluations. How many of you know we take communion once a month? So at least once a month we should be doing that. Just go to that next, that next slide for me, please. I'm going to ask you guys to really just stick with me because I want to try and keep things moving. First Corinthians 11, notice says, pastors ought to examine themselves before they... It doesn't say that, does it? It says, everyone, that is all Christians, ought to examine or evaluate themselves, ourselves, before they take communion. And we do that once a month. Actually, we'll see today that we ought to be evaluating our lives every 24 hours. But let me not get ahead of myself. How many of you know annually, right? I'm past that he was talking about cars and insurance a little while ago. How many of you know if you have a car, you have a motor vehicle, by law, you have to take it in for an evaluation every year, right? You have to do an MOT. Um, would you believe I bought a car back in April, and since then I've been driving it, not knowing until I took the car in for a service that the whole of my back brakes have not been working. Mad. I mean, I got there and, they, and, you know, they gave me, not only did they evaluate, they sent me a video showing me my back brakes. I think this is the, one of the first times I've ever taken my car to a main dealer. 
because when I bought the car, it's got a full service history. I thought, let me just stick with the. Took it. They, took, they sent me a video saying, Mr. Prendergast, your whole back, back, both sets, passenger and driver's side, your back brakes are not working. I've got a very hefty bill, but how many of you know it's better I get the brakes them done than be driving it? I've been driving for nearly a whole year just on the front brakes. How many of you know it's vital? In similar fashion, we need regular MOTs because you never ever know you might be driving, you might be living dangerously and not even appreciating that. I'm going to ask you to turn to Hebrews with me. Um, normally what we do um, as, a, as, a, as a regular practice is we normally take small sections of the scriptures and we walk through them, we exegete the text, right? Recently, we've been going through the book of Luke, and we've been taking whole chunks of Luke. I mean, we've been doing like whole chapters, how I don't know, but um, today, I'm not going to take a small section, I'm not even going to take a chapter. Brace yourself, because I'm going to take a whole book. And um, yeah, but it's not, it's, it's not that deep, it's not that deep. So just go to that next slide for me. Here's my title. We're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews. Here's my title. Keep moving. I wanted to say keep it moving, but keep moving. And my subheading is stay focused. Keep moving, stay focused. Now, the main point of this letter, that is the book of Hebrews, is encouragement for Jewish Christians to not return to what? Anybody know? Judaism, the old covenant, right? Encourage the main point of this letter, this book that you're opening up to, whether you know, you know. An Old Testament, a, a, a manuscript copy of the scriptures, a paper Bible, or on your phone, etc. This book that you're turning to is an encouragement for Jewish Christians to not return to Judaism. That is to not go back. That is to stick to the stick with the new covenant and not go back to the old covenant. Don't go back. Help me by saying, don't go back after three. One, two, three. Don't go back. Okay. Keep moving, stay focused, don't go back. The old was good, but the new is better, says the author. Keep moving, stay focused, don't go back. And we can apply this, how many of you know, to our own lives as we consider the things that we may be tempted to go back to. These Hebrew Christians need to keep moving and that forward. Keep growing and that immaturity to stay focused, keeping their eyes or their vision fixed on Jesus. And you might say, well, that seems quite straightforward. What's the big deal? Well, there was a major obstacle for these particular believers and it was impending persecution. Here in the first century, you had what they called religio licita versus religio illicita. That is legal religion. That's Latin, by the way. And I don't know Latin. I just can pronounce the words. Legal religion and illegal religion. Guess which one Judaism fell under? Legal religion. Guess which one Christianity fell under? Illegal religion. If, this, if these believers continue to follow Christ faithfully, they would be found to be criminals of the state. And the consequences were severe. 
In 64 AD, the persecution of Christians, I'm just going to read something here. Um, The persecution of Christians, quote, under Nero was marked by extreme brutality and cruelty. And some of the most horrific methods of execution were reserved for those who refused to renounce their faith. Nero would publicly execute those who refused to renounce their faith, either in events he'd personally organized or at regular state-sponsored events. At times, Christians were pitted against savage animals, such as dogs, in a gruesome display of violence and bloodshed. At others, victims were crucified. At times, um, there was a, there, there, another particular gruesome form of execution was to, to burn Christians alive as human torches. Nero was known for his extravagant gardens, which he would light up at night with burning torches. According to some accounts, Nero would have Christians tied to stakes, covered in tar or pitch, before setting them alight. The burning bodies would then be used to light up the gardens, creating a macabre spectacle for Nero's guests. The persecution of Christians was not confined to Rome alone, but spread throughout the empire According to tradition, Peter was crucified upside down during Nero's persecution. Paul was beheaded during the same persecution, likely somewhere between 64 and 67 AD. With Christians being confronted with this terrible fate, and Judaism being a a religious safe haven, can you see why it would be tempting to go back? This was... Their challenge, my question for us today, is what is yours? What are you tempted to go back to? Alcohol? Smoking weed? Cocaine? Taking heroin? Prescription drugs? drugs, Criminal activity? um, Secular ungodly music? Materialism? Sexual promiscuity? that old girlfriend, that old boyfriend, fame, fortune. And you might say, phew, thankfully, Robert never mentioned anything on that list that would draw me away. Well, let me ask an even deeper question. Is there anything not mentioned on that list that potentially in the future, due to unforeseen circumstances, that could possibly potentially lure you away? What might it take to tempt you away from Jesus? Well, whatever it may be, and there are things on that list that I know I need to, to guard myself against, right? Whatever it may be, Hebrews would argue nothing that would want to drag you back can be compared to Jesus. Nothing could be better than Jesus. And that is one of the author's favorite phrases in this book. Better. It's repeated 12 times in only 13 chapters. In view of these Hebrew Christians' respect and reverence for the Old Covenant, the author is going to contrast and compare the old and the new in helpful ways. Um, One that pointed to Jesus... And that is the Old Testament. And the other that is fulfilled by Jesus, that is the New Testament, right? 
The Old Testament is described in this book, Hebrews, as a shadow, where the New Testament is the substance, or that to which one points. I'll try and give you an example. Anybody read Genesis 22? It's about Abraham taking his son Isaac up to sacrifice him. Remember that story? So Abraham, he leaves the servants and he says to the servants, he says, look, me and my son, we're going to go worship, but we will be back. So whatever goes on up there, you can tell that Abraham in his heart knows that whatever God's asking me to do, which is sacrifice my son, even if he's got to raise him from the dead, we are coming back. That was his heart. So he goes, takes the wood for the sacrifice, and what does he do? He puts it on Isaac's back. So Isaac has to carry the wood up the hill, right? And he's there with his father, and his son says to him, Dad, I see the fire, and I see the wood, I see the knife, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says to his son, he says, Son, you know what? God will provide himself a sacrifice. You read Genesis 22. And prior to that... God, remember, said to Abraham, I want you to take your son. No, not the language. I want you to take your son, your only son, the son that you love. Now, Isaac wasn't the only son that Abraham had had. He had two sons. He had Ishmael, remember? But God says, if you like, I'm not talking about Ishmael. I'm talking about this son, the son of promise. No, take your son, your only son, the son that you love. Sounds a little bit like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? Obviously, I'm going to draw a parallel. So Abraham takes his son, puts the wood on his son's back. He takes the wood up the hill. And when they get to the top of the hill, obviously, he takes out the knife to sacrifice his son, doesn't he? And the angel stops him and said, stop, don't sacrifice your son. And what does he see caught in a thicket by its head? He sees a ram, an adult lamb, right? Sheep caught in the thicket by its head. Now, that whole story is a shadow that points to the substance later that is Jesus. You'd be like, how does that story point to Jesus? Well, the mountain that Abraham took his son up four centuries prior, sorry, two, two millennia, 2,000 years prior to Jesus coming, the mountains were called Moriah. And those mountains of Moriah are the same mountains upon which Jerusalem was built, the city, Zion, the mountains of Moriah. So where Abraham took his son up the hill is the same hill that Jesus went up, carrying the wood on his back like Isaac did. Jesus, the son that God loved, like Isaac was the son that Abraham loved, his only son, his only begotten son. Can you see the parallel? 2,000 years later, it's Jesus, the son, carrying the wood up the hill in order to be literally sacrificed. Can you see the parallel? One is a shadow, the other is the substance. And something I learned two weeks ago that blew my mind, I mean, if that doesn't already blow your mind, is, do you remember the ram, as I mentioned, was caught in a thicket? The ram was caught in a bush, if you like, of thorns by the head, and it couldn't get out. How many of you know Jesus himself was caught in a thicket of thorns when he had the crown of thorns placed. I'm like, the parallel is incredible, isn't it? Shadow, substance. So that's a picture of one of the things that the writer of Hebrews does quite consistently. 
In the book of Colossians, if you go to that next slide for me, sis. Is this, do I, I sound very loud. I'm, I'm, up, I'm, up, I'm allowed to you, okay. Um, Colossians 2 says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, and we'll come back to that in a minute, dietary laws, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, right? We know that today, you know, the Sabbath used to, used to be a Friday, um, sundown, sunup, sundown to sunup the next day, right? That was the Sabbath. Um, and they had to keep the Sabbath, the Sabbath back then legally, um, ceremonially. We don't have to do that now, but I don't need to unpack that, do I? Um, but verse 17 is the point. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So food and drink, um, the whole thing about festivals, new moon, Sabbath, just like Genesis 22, Abraham taking his son up, all of that points ultimately to Jesus. And I could give you a myriad of stories from the Old Testament that all have shadows that, and just like a shadow, if I walk into the room, sorry, if I'm walking into the room and the sun is shining in the proper direction, how many of you know you're going to see my shadow before you see me? Again, depending on where the sun is, right? But how many of you know the shadow ain't me? If you care about me or you love me, you're not going to embrace the shadow. You're going to want to embrace me because I'm the substance, right? Taking it for granted that I'm important to you. You know what I mean? I'm trying to say, with regards to the shadow, it's wonderful, it's helpful, it's a blessing. But ultimately, it's a blessing because of who it points to which is the Old Testament is a shadow that points to Jesus. It's crazy. Now, <clears throat> if you compare the shadow to something of substance, we're going to say the substance is better. One points to the other that is more substantial. So the writer says, why hold on to the shadow? Hold on to the substance. Don't go back. Cling into the shadow, hold fast to the substance, which is Christ. Now, this letter is described in chapter 13, the last book, the last chapter of the book. Sis, go to that next slide for me, please. It's described, that is, the whole book is described as a word of exhortation. A word of exhortation. Basically, it means to admonish urgently. There's an urgency underlying Every verse, every word, every chapter in this book. Go, go to the next slide for me, sis. And <clears throat> the admonition is, is negative as well as positive. Chapter 1 through 10 emphasizes the negative. Chapter 11 through 13, the last section, emphasizes the positive. The negative is, don't go back. And the positive is, do go on. Don't go, don't go, I'm going to make that back. Don't go back, but do go on. And there is no in-between. There isn't even an option to stand still. Because standing still would be a dangerous mistake. Let's go to that next one. Hebrews 2 verse 1 says, Therefore we must, we must pay much closer attention. Not even pay attention, you know. Not even pay closer attention. Pay much. It's like a triple emphasis. Much closer attention to what we have heard, lest what? We drift away from it. How many of you, every time I bring up Austria, you know what I'm saying, it makes my heart bleed. Are we going to try and organize Austria? I was going to say next year, but it's already next year. This year, 2024. We need to, we need to 
we need a trip to Austria. When we used to travel to Austria, one of the things I noticed one, one year was um, we, used to, we stayed in a castle on the side of a mountain overlook, overlooking a lake with kind of like the Alps in the background. And we had our own private dock by the lake. So literally, you come down with a towel and that. You walk, remember, you walk under the road, right, and go over to the dock, jumping up into the lake and swim in the lake. <clears throat> well, one of the things that I noticed about the lake is, you, one of the things you notice is one of the things that you don't notice, that there was a current, and it's not the sea, you know, this is just the lake. And more often than not, you don't even see the current. But if you're lying on one of those Lido blow-up things, You've got a mind sharp, because if you fall asleep, especially if the sun's shining, you fall asleep and it's nice and you're chilling. And before you know, if you, I think it was, was it, there was someone who was on the Lido one day and they fell asleep, only to find themselves way out in the, I wouldn't say the middle of the lake, because it's a massive lake, but 100 meters away. And, you know, I say we had to dive in and go save them. That's the royal we, because I don't think I was one of the ones. I can swim, you know what I mean? I can, I can swim, but someone jumped in and had to go rescue and bring them back. Why? Because <clears throat> they drifted. And they didn't drift because, you know, they had a motor and they was in a boat and the motor took them out. The current took them out. And that because they weren't resisting actively the current and they began to drift. And that is what will happen. I just noticed, brother, you're a Liverpool fan. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> now, see, I've got to be careful that I don't start drifting, right? Um, the danger of drifting is a real one, hence the need to keep moving. Because if you stop and you stand still, you could easily begin to drift. Can you hear the admonition? Can you hear the urgent exhortation? The writer actually makes a habit of using nautical language. Pastor E, you like this one. Don't drift away, nautical language. In chapter 6, verse 19, he says, don't pull up your anchor. In chapter um, 10, verse 38, 38, he says, don't lower your sails. Obviously, back in them days, they never had motors. You were, if you had a ship, it was carried along by, by, by sails. But only if you had the sails up, right? That's how the wind will catch you and take you. He says, don't let your sails down. Because you let your sails down, then there's no wind, which is a picture of the spirit, to carry you, to, 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 to enhance your forward movement. Okay, starting at the very beginning of the book, why should these Christians, why should these Jewish Christians not go back to Old Testament Judaism? I'm going to try to run through these. Um, number one, sis, help me please. The first reason is because Jesus is better than the Old Testament prophets. I mean, they were gangster. Isaiah, Jeremiah, you know what I'm saying? Daniel, Obadiah, Nahum, name, name them. The, the, the prophets were amazing and... Um, were a solid, substantial part of their history as Jews, right? But notice Hebrews 1, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, how? By the prophets in the Old Testament. But in these last days, new days, New Testament, he's spoken to us by his son. You see the contrast in verse 1 and 2? Now listen to the superiority of Jesus. 
whom um, that is his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Don't, don't, um, don't miss the, the, the substantial weight of all that he's going to say about Jesus in the first few verses. He was a, he's appointed the heir of all things. That's a very little big statement. Through him, through whom also God the Father created the world. John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. And all things were made, were made by him. Right? I mean, you know, Jesus was there from the beginning. He's a second member of the Trinity. Verse 3, he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Rah. That means when you look, if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. I had a mad thought this week. We, you often will hear that. Do, do you know, in view of the truth of that statement, if you want to know what the Father looks like, look at Jesus. If God the Father was to look at Jesus, he would only see a reflection of himself in terms of his nature. You know how mad that is? Jesus, don't sleep on the Lord Jesus. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds not just the world, you know. You see what it says? Where is it? I'm reading. He upholds, I mean, he just upholds the universe. By the word of his power, after making purification. This is the same person who then, Philippians chapter 2 takes off his glory and lowers himself and humbles himself and becomes a man. And not only humbles himself to become a man, it would be enough to say, wow, that's humility for God to become a man. You know what I mean? That's like for, for, for me to become a roach. But, but further is the, is, is the level of the humility. It says he humbles himself, Philippians 2, um, to, to, to that uh, of a man, and then he humbles himself even more to that of a servant, and even more, he humbles himself to that of a servant who becomes a sacrifice who goes to the cross. I heard this week during the week of prayer that when Jesus hung on the cross, like many who were executed, one of the things that you, 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 you experience is incontinence. So at the foot of the cross, on the floor, what you would find is not just blood, obviously, from the execution but, and, and sweat, but you'd also find urine and feces. And the, 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 the criminal would probably be hanging there naked. You want to talk about humility? That's why... This is, this is just one of the reasons and the rationale that, that helps me to unequivocally follow Jesus because there's no one like him. Uh, one, of, one, of, one of the things that I'm not tempted by is alternative religions because none of them compare this is better. This is better. Um, notice, this great individual who is a king, because notice we're going to see him seated by the majesty on high. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So this 
incredible individual, the second member of the Trinity, not just Jesus, the Son of God, but Jesus, God the Son, is the one who became a sacrifice. And then after he finished his sacrifice, he went back to his rightful place and sat down on, the, on his throne at the right hand of the Father. Daniel chapter 7. Yo. See, I could, I, I, I could have just exposited this section of, of Hebrews chapter 1, verse, verse 1 to verse 3. I could have just, that this could be my message. But moving on, what can I say? You know, you know me already. Um, <clears throat> it's a new year, and, and, and it is a new me. Uh, you'll see in a minute. Um, a second point. So number one, if you're like, yeah, right. Jesus is better than the prophets. That's what we just saw. Number two, Jesus is better than the angels. Verse four of chapter one. Having become as much notice, superior now, not just to the prophets, but to the angels. As the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Answer, none. God never said that to none of the angels. As glorious as Gabriel, as glorious as, what's the other archangel? Michael might be. None of them did Jesus, did God the Father say this to, but he said it to Jesus, the son. Or again, I will be to him a father, to any angel, and, and he shall be to me a son. Which angel? None, right? And verse six, and again, when he brings the firstborn, that is Jesus, into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Well, if the angels are to worship the sun, how many of you know the sun is superior to the angels? And it continues this thought to the end of chapter one, laying out the case comparison of Jesus' superiority to the angels from verse seven to 14. And by the way, all of the quotes in yellow that you see are quotes from the Old Testament embedded in the Old Testament text. And they're allusions, Old Testament allusions pointing to Jesus. Number three, not only is Jesus better than the prophets, not only is Jesus better than the angels. Um, sis, go to that next one. Jesus is better than Moses. And this is a big one. Hebrews 3 verse 1 says, Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, he says, consider Jesus. As if he hasn't already done that, there's more. He says, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Note verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As, 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 as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. See, Moses is a part of the house. Jesus is the builder of the house. Verse 4, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Oh, and there's another reference. To, wait a minute, but you just said Jesus is the builder. Yeah, again, it's another reference to the fact that Jesus is God. Verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. There's a difference between a son and a servant. And as glorious as Moses as a servant was. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And that in him. 
us and Moses, we are part of the house that God is building. We'll see that in a minute with regards to the Davidic covenant. Um, but can you see Jesus is the one that is bigger, is better, is greater than the house. The house is amazing. The church is amazing. The New Testament example of that. Number four, Jesus is better than prophets. He's better than, what was the second one? And he's better than the angels, thank you. He's better than Moses. Number four, he's better than Joshua. Hebrews chapter 4, starting at verse 7, it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, remember, the writer of Hebrews is speaking to these Hebrew Christians, but at the same time, he is also speaking to us. But he's quoting from the Old Testament. He says, quote in Old Testament, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 8. The reference is back to Joshua. For if Joshua had given them what? Rest. God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest, that is through Christ, has also rested from his works as God did. See, this is making reference to the fact that, do you remember when Joshua, um, Moses brought the children of Israel through the wilderness to a point He died, Joshua takes over, and he takes the people into the promised land or into the land of rest. No more fighting, at least initially. You know what I'm saying? No more drama, no more Egyptian bondage, no more Pharaoh, peace and rest. But how many of you know it was temporary? But it was still a shadow pointing to a rest that was to come that would only be found in Jesus. And this goes all, it's a recapitulation. It actually goes all the way back to Genesis and in the garden. Because remember, God created the world in six days and then on the seventh day, he what? He rested. Because even from the, the, the beginning of the Bible, from the beginning of time, God was trying to say, I want to bring you into a space, like a real safe space. I want to bring you into a place of real rest. And we see it fulfilled later on because it wasn't completely fulfilled in the Old Testament. It was a shadow. We see the substance where? In Jesus. Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me. Why? All who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you that rest. You see, when, 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 when Jews heard Jesus say this in the first century, they would immediately begin to think about the time of Joshua, they would immediately begin to think about, oh, the garden. You remember when it was nice and it was peaceful and it was calm and there was no drama and there was no sin? Imagine what it would be like if we could find that again. When Jesus says, come to me, I'm going to give you that. Re-. You'd be like, you're going to provide that. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest. And it's a spiritual rest, isn't it? This is not just a, oh, it's Friday and Sunday, Sunday, meet me at the hotel. It's not just a weekend break. This is a, 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 a spiritual rest. And how many of you have experienced that when you come to Jesus and he forgives your sins and that burden of your sin slips off your back and you feel light and you feel, wait a minute, something's happened in my life. That happened to me um, 34 years ago in 1989. When I was introduced to Jesus by the gospel, I walked out of that church after saying, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. And I did that with my, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. Um, and 
When I stepped out of that church, out of that building, St. Mark's in Kennington, sky looked different. The grass looked greener. And I couldn't articulate exactly what had happened. I think I'm a little bit better at communicating that experience 30 odd years down the road. One of the ways I would describe it is I found rest for my soul. And it's wonderful. It's much better. Now, I, I enjoyed myself before I become a Christian. Don't get it twisted. But it can't be compared to what I experience now. That was good, but this is better. This is better. <clears throat> and it's only come through Jesus. He provides a better rest. Go to number five for me, sis. Number five. <clears throat> Can you hear the writer of Hebrews challenging these, these Hebrew Christians to not go back to that which is not as good as that which they currently have? Jesus' priesthood is better than the Aaronic priesthood. Starting at verse 14, it says, Since then, we have now noticed not just a priest and not just a high priest, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now, you have to obviously understand your Old Testament to a degree. The Old Testament was the individual who was really one of the key individuals in the whole nation. It was the high priest who was responsible on the Day of Atonement to slaughter that lamb. And again, that picture of Jesus. He'd cut the, the throat of that lamb and it would bleed. And he'd take the blood of that lamb and he'd go into the tabernacle. And he'd not just go... You remember there were three compartments. You had the outer court, which is where they made the sacrifices, where the big barbecue was, where they threw the sacrifices and burned them. And there was the, the bronze laver where they used to wash because they were full of blood, because there were constantly carcasses everywhere. And they would take the blood and go round into the tabernacle, the second compartment, which is called a holy place. Do you remember that? Where on the right-hand side, you had the table of showbread. On the left-hand side, you had the menorah, the golden lampstand that provided light because there were no windows in this compartment. And he would walk past these items, and he would come to the table of um, the altar of incense, which is where they used to burn the incense. And you know them incense sticks where you can buy um, at, um, the... The, the, the Muslim man shop, and you burn them, and it's incense, and that's and they'd burn it, and in what was in front of the altar of incense? Do you remember? For those of you that are still paying attention, just in front of the altar was the veil, and then behind the veil was the Ark of the Covenant. And they would take the, 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 the blood of the animal and they'd go in behind the veil and they'd pour the blood of that sacrifice onto what they called the mercy seat, which is where the two angels, the golden mercy seat, they'd pour the blood. And that would atone not just for the sins of the priest, but the, not just the sins of those who were in the outer court celebrating on the Day of Atonement, but it would, it would cleanse the whole nation of Israel from sins, the day of at-one-ment or atonement, where the nation was brought back together with one. The Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That was a special day. Sidebar, that day is the same day where Jesus was crucified. Why? Because he's the ultimate lamb of God, whose blood. And in Hebrews, it says he takes that blood, not into the physical um, tabernacle. It says Jesus took his blood into the heavenly tabernacle. Because the heavenly tabernacle had to be cleansed by better things than the blood of 
goat and sheep. My point is, the high priest is the individual who did this. And he'd never go into, the, into that very um, sacred space without blood, making sure that he had atoned for his own sins. Because if he went round there and, and he wasn't in a good place himself, God would kill him. They literally had to tie a rope around the high priest's leg. So when he went in there, just in case, if you're not know saying he'd had hidden sins and so on and so forth, and he, di- and he died in there, who's going to go in there? Go get- I'm not going in there to get you better. You better drag him out by that rope, right? He was the high priest. Hebrews 4 says, we don't just have a, a new priest, a new high priest. It refers to him as a great high priest. Because Jesus, as a priest, doing all that I just mentioned, but in a spiritual sense, is on a level. He's passed through, notice, the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. He didn't just go into the, the, the tabernacle. He passed through the heavens. Notice, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession on that basis. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect, um, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Um, <clears throat> that's one of the reasons he's the great high priest is because the regular high priest was a sinner. Jesus wasn't. I've got to keep moving. Um, Hebrews 5 goes on, because it talks quite a lot about this priesthood business. It goes on and it says, And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now remember, Aaron was the very, 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 very first high priest, right? It references him as the head, if you like, of the whole of the priesthood from, in, from an Old Testament point of view. Um, Aaron, verse 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest. It's like Aaron never chose to be high priest. It was a calling, you know what I'm saying? And Jesus, in like manner, did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, here's another quote from the Old Testament, the writer of Hebrews is anonymous. No one knows who wrote Hebrews, but whoever he was, he really knew his Old Testament. I would argue, over a cup of coffee, that it was Apollos. This isn't Paul, because the Hebrew, the style and the, the written... Um, the written style of Hebrews is completely unlike anything that Paul writes. How many of you know um, there's two, uh, two, two types of Greek? There's what they call classic Greek, which is what Hebrews is written in. And then you've got Koine Greek, or some like to call it Cockney Greek. Um, Paul wrote in Cockney Greek. The writer of Hebrews writes in Koine Greek. It's classical Greek. This person who wrote this, that's why I'd argue it's, it's um, Apollos. Because Apollos, it says in the book of Acts, was mighty in the scriptures. He refers to the Old Testament in ways that others don't. Now, <clears throat> Jesus, verse 6. You are a priest forever, but not after the order, order of Aaron. He says, you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And this is another quote from the Old Testament, right? Hebrews replete with these quotes. Verse 9, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated as God, um, but being designated by God a high priest, again, not off after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this brother Melchizedek. There's so much I'd love to say that I can't because of time, but 
Melchizedek. Melchizedek in the Old Testament, he has no father, no mother. He has no beginning of days. He has no end of life. What kind of description is that of an individual? He got no beginning, no ending. He ain't got no mother, no father. He's king of righteousness and he's king of peace. It doesn't say that he's a righteous king. He says he's king of righteousness. And he's not a king who has peace. He's king of peace. The word is Salem. And Salem is where we get Jerusalem, right? The city of... This guy is unusual. He's not just a priest, but he's also a king. He's a king and a priest, which is very unusual. And in, in, in Genesis chapter 14, Abraham gives tithes to Melchizedek. Now, you've got to remember, Abraham's blessed, especially according to Genesis chapter 12, where he's given the Abrahamic covenant. But he gives tithes to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blesses Abraham. So the point the writer of Hebrews is making is that the lesser is blessed by the greater. You'd be like, what? who's this Melchizedek? He's greater than Abraham. And on top of that, it says, not only is he greater than Abraham, he's greater than Abraham and, and all of his descendants. That is, everyone that's in his loins. I'm trying to keep it PG. So that means that Aaron, who's going to come out of Abraham later on, right? Aaron is going to be one of his descendants. Abr- this is what the writer of Hebrews, he says, he, says, he says, Aaron, who was in Abraham's loins, when Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, Aaron also could be argued gave tithes to Abraham. You'd be like, wait a minute, but Aaron's a great high priest. Yeah, that's the point. The point is, even though he's a great high priest, Jesus is on another level. Sorry, getting ahead of myself, isn't it? Melchizedek is on another level to Aaron because Aaron gives even to Melchizedek. In Abraham, if that makes sense. And the greater is blessed, the, 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 greater, the, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Melchizedek. And, and Melchizedek gives Abraham something to eat in Genesis 14. What does he give him to eat? Anybody know? Bread and wine. How many of you know Melchizedek is an Old Testament shadow pointing to who? Can you see it? Because Jesus is a king and he's a priest. Jesus, we just read, he's the king of the universe. Let alone, you know, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. It's like it's a picture. Melchizedek points to Jesus. When I used to live in Broccoli, um, when my kids were really little, um, my next door neighbor was Jewish. And his name was Uri, which is short for Uriah. Remember, Uriah was the, the husband of Bathsheba that David had murdered after he sexed up his wife, remember? My man, same name, Uri, Uriah, Uri. And me and him used to chat all the time. And when we used to talk, da, 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 we'd be, I'd be outside. The, literally, my next door neighbor, I'd come out, we'd be chatting. I'm like, what's going on, Uri? Da, 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 da. And obviously, I'm going to try and talk to him about the Bible. He's Jewish, isn't it? And he's quick and happy to talk about the Bible. But if we're talking about football, or we're talking about cars, or we're talking, it's fine. But as soon as we start talking about the Bible, he put out his cigarette, and he'd run, he said, wait a minute, he'd run upstairs, literally, put on his kipper and come back downstairs and then we'd, we'd reconvene the conversation. Because all of a sudden we're getting spiritual now, isn't it? And, um, and I said, worry, man, you're a joker. Because you, you, bruv, you, you, you eat bacon. You know what I mean? It's like... <laughs> but me and him would joke like that. And then one day, I, it, one day I was in his house and we were sitting and chatting. 
And I said, Uri, come on, man, you're Jewish. I said, Uri, I worship the God of your fathers. And Uri went, hmm? And I said, Uri, man, bruv, your heritage, you're Jewish, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I said, I said, Uri, tell me about Melchizedek. And he went, what? And I said, bruv, go get your Bible. He had a Jewish Bible, and it was back to front, so it's a bit tricky to find it, but it's got parallel text in English. I found Genesis 14. I said, Uri, who's this? And he said, oh, Melchizedek. And he quoted it in Hebrew, because he can speak fluent Hebrew. And um, he said, I don't know who this is. He says, but I'm going to ask my rabbi. And he did. I don't know, a couple weeks later, whatever. I said, Uri, you chat to your man yet? And he said, yeah. He said, he said yeah. And he said, my rabbi said, we don't read this part of the Torah. I wonder why. Because if you did, how are you going to deny who Melchizedek points to? It's an Old Testament shadow of Jesus. Okay. At the end of chapter 5, have to keep it moving. At the end of chapter 5, we have this, this little parenthesis. Um, <clears throat> the writer is, is, is talking about Jesus' priesthood like I have just been, like we have been. Um, and Jesus' priesthood exceeding, because the writer of Hebrews, his whole argument is Melchizedek points to Jesus. He's, <clears throat> he's talking about Melchizedek, but the listeners are not getting it. Um, uh, 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 I resist the temptation to say anything at that point with regards to, to you who might be listening. But what he does is, he says, I'm talking about Melchizedek and you lot ain't getting it, right? Um, sis, would you go to that next slide? Because what he does next is he berates them. This is, the, this is verse 10. We just, be, we just finished reading this about Jesus and Melchizedek and he's like, you're not getting it. Listen to verse 11. He says, about this we have much to say. So I said, a, I said a lot about Melchizedek, right? I probably said a lot that he didn't say. But notice, he says, we have much to say and it's hard to explain. Because you might have been sitting there thinking, I don't get this Melchizedek thing. Cool. Since you, maybe, have become dull of hearing. That is, the re that, that is his listeners are not in a place where they're understanding what he's saying. Imagine, these are Jewish believers, you know, who don't really know their Bible. How, many, how long have you been a Christian? How long have I been a Christian? And there's, there's parts of my Bible that I don't know. How many, like, pages stuck together? You know them, you know them books like Obadiah, Job, like Micah? If, imagine if I said to you now, turn to Micah or turn to Nahum. Unless you know your books of the Bible, and you've and you got to peel them pages apart because they never see the light of day, Right? Could we also be as guilty as them? And I'm putting my hand up to say, sometimes I'm dull of hearing. And um, because I don't esteem this as highly as I ought to. I don't esteem Jesus as highly as I ought to. And there's parts that I don't understand. Verse 12, for though by this, no, watch the rebuke. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone still to teach you again the ABCs. The basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk. Guess who drinks milk? Babies. Not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of... And you know, it's not a bad thing to be on milk, but it's a bad thing to constantly be on milk. Right? 
Those who live on, are unskilled in the word of righteousness since that person is a child, they're immature. But solid food is for who? The mature. See, that's where the writer is trying to get the listeners to. Maturity. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Can you see the difference between being mature and being immature, being on meat rather than being on milk? Well, where would you find yourself on the maturity meter? See, these are the things that we need to consider at the beginning of a new year as we take our spiritual MOT. Well, then the next chapter, chapter 6, raises the issue, because he's, he, he's raised it. Chapter 6 is going to tackle the issue now of false conversion. It's like chapter 6 drills down deeper on this to say, all right, you know what? Is it really a case that it's not just that you're not mature and you're actually immature, Maybe the case is that you're not actually a Christian. We're not going to go there today. But that's his argument in chapter 6. And he begins to talk about true and false conversion and the danger of apostasy. Sis, go to that next slide for me. And basically the antidote <clears throat> is this, verse 11 and 12. And we desire, listen to what he says. He says, and we desire each one of you to show the same notice, earnestness. To have the full assurance. Remember, you're on the Lido. You're in the lake. Imagine, the lake is one thing. What, what, what happens when you're in the sea? When there's, a serious, when there's a serious tide? You know what I mean? You better be swimming against that tide, right? Look, earnestly, right? So that you can get to a place where you have full assurance of hope. Until the end, you'll be like, right, I've got, well, I've got to be earnest. I've got to be swimming against the tide constantly. What, until the end? Verse 12 said that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Can you hear the warning? And there are more rebukes um, and associated warnings. Go to the next slide for me, sis. I'm just going to run through this. There's holy, I'll just mention a few. Um, chapter 3, sorry, chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we notice? It doesn't say reject such a great salvation. He says neglect. Verse 12 of chapter 3, he says, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving. Be like, wow, those two go together. Wow, to be unbelieving is evil. Raw. An evil, unbelieving heart leading, leading you to fall away from the living God. But notice, exhort one another how often? Once a year, at the beginning of the year, absolutely. Once a month, like when we take communion. The man said, every 24 hours. Now, I don't know about you, but I know I need it. Because if I don't get regular MOTs, regular evaluations, after a process of time, you know what I find myself doing? Drifting. Every 24 hours, as long as, as it is called today, that none of you, none of we, that I, that me, none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And what did my mum used to say back in the day? 
um, about sin and its deceit. I can't remember, but it's a funny Jamaican quote. Um, but basically, sin, that's it. Sin is tricky fight. Sin will trick you. You know what I'm saying? Sin, oh, tricky fight. Some Jamaican made up colloquialism. You know what I mean? Sin is deceitful. Sin will trick you. Like Eve in the garden. Imagine God saying to Eve, Eve, eat the fruit. Oh, we can't eat the fruit. God said not to eat it. God said not to touch it. God didn't say to touch it. The devil already knew she was on slippery ground because she's quoting things that God never said. And God, and, no, come on, man. God knows if you eat the fruit, you'll be like him. And then Eve's like, wow, yeah, wow. Imagine what it'd be like to be like him. You'd be like, Eve, God said in a previous chapter that he made you in his image. You're already like him, Eve. Can you see how she got deceived? Trickify. The devil's much smarter than you and me, you know. Amen. Don't ever get to the point where you feel like, I got this, man, I can do this. You'll be like, you know what, Bible study, I don't need to go Bible study, I got this. I've been reading my Bible, innit? Sunday, like Sunday, I don't need to go to church every Sunday, surely. And again, this is not to put you, this is not to, to um, what is it, to guilt trip you. You know what I mean? I'm saying, the man said, I need it every 24 hours, so I'm going to just agree with that, innit? Otherwise, I find that I'm slipping into this place of deceitfulness, which leads to having a heart that's hard. And as a Christian, we don't want hard hearts, because hard hearts are not good. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ, <clears throat> if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Can you hear the writer of Hebrews' exhortation? Can you hear the strong admonition to keep moving and don't go back? <laughs> and that to the end. You're like, oh my gosh. I wasn't really expecting to have to hear this on a Sunday morning, a Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, it could be, um, at this rate, right? <clears throat> Take care. Take care. Can you hear the warning? And then the last one, I mean, there's a holy pin in this book, the last one. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, still opportunity, if you're here and you're breathing, there's still opportunity to enter into that that rest. Let us on that basis fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. May God help us not just to hear, but to listen. You know what I mean? When I was a youth, my mom would shout from another room and I could hear her but am I listening? Five minutes later, she comes in with the belt. You know what I mean? Because I, I heard her, but I was not listening. Now, that's an exa gross exaggeration. Oh, my gosh. You know what I mean? I could get in trouble. Like, if that guy's out on, on YouTube, who knows what's going to... Police come for me next week or... Oh, no, they come from my mum, innit? But she, she passed away last year, so... <clears throat> Where am I? For good news, good news, good news. Can you hear the warning? There's further warnings 
Hebrews chapter 10 is a very scary chapter, and chapter 12, and throughout the rest of the book. Okay. Regarding the Old Testament, let me say a little bit about what we, what we call continuity and discontinuity. Um, there are things in the Old Testament that discontinue, that stop, right? Things like physical circumcision. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus, right? Because as a big man, you know, our culture, I'm Jamaican, like we don't practice circumcision. And I think, is, is, is that a warning, sis? Am I getting too graphic? Um, <clears throat> it's normally Bertram that does that. Where's Bertram? Bertram gives me that. <clears throat> Thankfully, that's one of the things, you, you weren't, okay, sorry, sis. Thankfully, that's one of the things that's, that, 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 that ceases or discontinues as far as the Old Testament is concerned. How many of you know we need, a, we need a very helpful, healthy perspective on how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament? Otherwise, you can get yourself in trouble. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here on a Sunday. You'd be in a Seventh-day Adventist church on a Saturday. Why? Because they believe that you have to still keep the Sabbath, which we don't. That's another message for another day. But one of the things that discontinues is physical circumcision and the need to, to, to legally, ceremonially keep the quote-unquote Sabbath. Dietary laws. The only reason I don't eat shellfish is because, like I mentioned earlier, I have urticaria. I break out in some mad rush if I eat certain shellfish. When we went to Spain, um, when we went, oh, another long story for, I ain't got time. Um, but that's the reason I don't eat shellfish. I don't not eat it because the Old Testament says you can't eat shellfish. Because if I'm going to keep to that law, then I can't wear mixed fibers, polyester and cotton. We don't need to, uh, to, to adhere to those laws anymore. You get yourself entangled in legalism. Animal sacrifices. Everyone's getting excited about the temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem. I mean, if you know, there's a lot of madness going on in, in Israel right now. But one of the things that the Zionists are wanting to do is rebuild the temple that originally was Herod's temple, that was Solomon's temple, that was the original tabernacle. They want to rebuild it, but they can't. Why? Because on the site of the tabernacle or the old site of the tabernacle is the third most holy place in Islam called the Dome of the Rock or the Mosque of Oman. And anyhow they try to lick down that, 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 that mosque, hell, like my mom used to say, hell on powder house. But they want to rebuild it. Why? They want to rebuild the temple so they can begin to offer sacrifices as Jews. Because they haven't been offering sacrifices for 2,000 years since the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. A part of the question I ask my Jewish friends is, how do you practice your religion when you have no sacrificial system? How do you get your sins forgiven? Because from what I understand from the Old Testament, you need to be offering animal sacrifices. But I then can go on, like I said to my friend Uri, I'm saying, Bridget, you don't need to do that no more because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. And I'm getting ahead of myself, which, but I need to. Um, and physical temple. So those are some of the things that discontinue. But then there are things that continue, discontinuity, continuity. Some of the things that continue are the moral law, you know, Ten Commandments minus the third commandment, which is to keep the Sabbath holy. But we keep the Sabbath holy in principle. And it's not, we don't just have one day that we say, oh yeah, you know, I can't do this and I can't do that because it's Sunday. You know, you walk into the church building, oh, you can't, stop swearing, you can't swear. We're in the church, we're in the house of God. No, the Sabbath for us ought to be every day, Right? 
Again, another message for another day. But this is one of the things that continues the moral law. And the Ten Commandments, the ultimate aim of the Ten Commandments is not for us to keep them to be made righteous. Because nobody can keep them to be made righteous. Only one person kept them, which is Jesus, right? And Jesus said, that's the reason I came. I came in order to fulfill the law, the commandments. And he did so on our benefit so that he could become the sacrifice, the perfect, innocent sacrifice for our sins. So don't try to keep the law because even if you kept the law from this point to the day that you died, and you'd be like, oh, I kept it every day, you know, Rob. I'd be like, yeah, but what about the, what about the years before? When you proper broke the law on a daily, on a, on a weekly, on a daily, on a minute-by-minute basis. Time don't forgive sin. So even if you were to change now, you still have a boatload of sin that you still are guilty for. How many of you know it's good news that Jesus has come and become the sacrifice for you and for me so that now I don't have to pay that penalty for my sin because I can't. Because the penalty for sin is eternal separation from God in hell. That's a price that's too high to pay. But Jesus paid it for us on our behalf. So we keep the law... um, not to be saved, but because we are saved. And we want to be an example to others, don't we? We want to be lying and stealing and committing adultery. Because people look at us and say, see, I don't want to become a Christian because the church is full of hypocrites. We can't keep giving them that excuse. Amen? Um, but <coughs> the law or the Ten Commandments are actually a means, not of justification, but of sanctification. It's that which God uses to make us look more like him. We're not trying to keep the law to get saved out here. So can you see there's, there's discontinuity, but there is continuity. And <clears throat> I wish I had time to talk about the Adamic covenant. When we talk about the old covenant, how many of you know it's not one? There are, mul- there are a multiplicity of different covenants. You've got the Adamic covenant fulfilled like Genesis 3.15 when God says, um, the seed of the woman... I'm going to put enmity between Satan and the woman and the seed of the woman. And women don't have seed, but one eventually in the future will. Um, It's talking about Mary. He says, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise his heel. That's a picture of Jesus going to the cross, crushing the head of the devil. Jesus overcame the enemy on the cross. But can you see how he was bruised? Right? That's the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. That's the Adamic covenant. Then you have the Noahic covenant. The Noahic covenant, Noah, when Noah, remember, the flood came and um, <clears throat> they were in the boat and eight people were rescued, were saved, right? When they came off the boat, what did, what did God put in the sky? Rainbow. Now, this rainbow is deep because it's a bow. How many of you know a bow is a weapon of war? Well, God already just wrought war on the world. Now he takes his bow and he hangs it up. No more war. Temporarily. God says, I'm never going to judge the world again like this. But he doesn't say, I'm never going to judge the world. He says, I'm never going to judge the world by water. The next time will be by fire. So the bow is actually a picture of God's judgment and his mercy. Right? If you get on the ark, you're good. But how many of you know if you're not on the ark, you're in trouble? I heard someone say, if God is for you, who can be against you? But if God is against you, you're finished. <laughs> and, 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 check, and, and, look, and think about the irony. 
The LGBT, LGBT, I've already got myself in trouble, so hey. The LGBTQ plus I community, they use the rainbow as their symbol. What an irony. The very symbol that is a reminder when the rain falls, isn't it, and it's heat and um, the atmosphere is a certain, we see the rainbow, don't we? The rainbow is a picture of God's mercy. Receive his mercy, but it's also a picture of his judgment. It's ironic that, that they would, out of everything they could have chosen, they choose the rainbow. In Romans 1, it talks about the fact that our own sins will be evidence of our unrighteousness. Lord, help us. All right, Lord, help me. Um, what am I going to do? Um, Adamic, Noahic, I'm not going to talk about the Abrahamic and the Mosaic and the Davidic covenants. All of these are covenants in the Old Testament. They all, if you like, encapsulate the old covenant, but they all, and I don't have time, point to the new covenant. They all point to Jesus. And <laughs> go to that next slide for me, sis. Um, with regards to the, the promise of this new covenant, how many of you know Jesus is the one who initiates this new covenant? <clears throat> I won't read it, but in, 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 in Hebrews chapter 8, we have a direct quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, and it's referencing the new covenant. And the new covenant is um, one that is inaugurated, initiated by Jesus. Hebrews 8 goes on to say, verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates, and here's his favorite word again, is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Can you see the new is better than the old. So keep it moving. Don't go back. Why would you? Go to the next one, sis. Number seven. We're nearly done. Jesus provides a better sacrifice. Um, <clears throat> it says in chapter nine, it says, but as it, how many of you know, I mean, I'm here beating myself up. We, we got to chapter nine, right? Which I think is... There's <laughs> me blowing my own trumpet. Verse 26 of chapter nine says, but as it is, he, speaking of Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. And it's mad because Acts chapter 2 tells us that the, the last days began in Acts chapter 2. End of the ages was in the first century. Well, if the, if the last days began then, what on earth are we living in now? We must be in the last of the last days, sidebar. It says, to put away sin by the sacrifice of who? An animal? No. Old Testament sacrifices were animal sacrifices, discontinued. But there is a continuity in that there's still a sacrifice, but it's not an animal. It's a human. It's Jesus. Verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, and only one time, Jesus ain't going to be sacrificed again. One sacrifice for all time. Um, this section here just talks about the blood of bull and bulls and goats compared to Jesus. Um, I'll pick it up from... Verse 9, then he added, Behold, I have come, that is Jesus speaking, to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once 
for all. Can you see that on every level, Jesus is better? Um, in terms of continuity, um, one of the I've got to rush to the end now. One of the big things that continues from the Old Testament that you see in the Old Testament, you're like, okay, I see there's some things in the Old Testament that stop, but there are some things that continue. Anybody know the word that begins with F? That's a big thing in the Old Testament that continues into the New Testament. Begins with F and it's five letters. Okay, faith. Amen. So let's jump to chapter 11. Um, go to that next slide for me, sis. Remember... Um, <clears throat> The warnings and the strong admonitions to keep moving and not go back are ultimately encouraging us to follow the example of these individuals. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses' parents, Moses, Joshua, and Rahab, and then many, many others in Hebrews chapter 11. They call it the Hebrew Hall of, not fame, but of faith. And, <clears throat> and their faith was expressed by the things that they did, not just the things they said. Right? We've got to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Noah built an ark. They did something. Rahab, right? Wow, I'll just highlight her real quick. She was not Jewish. She was a Gentile, right? And on top of that, she was a... I was going to say she was a whole... She was a prostitute. She, she was. She was. She was a prostitute. And you'd be like, really? You know what I'm saying? You'd be like... Yeah, I don't have time. Rahab got into the family of Rahab became the grandmother of David, right? And David was the great, great, great grandfather of Jesus. A prostitute is in the family line of, it's like, is there any, is there any family that ain't mash up? Is there any family that ain't got madness? Even Jesus' family had a madness going on. Um, can you see the common denominator? All of them are failures, but all of them have faith. How many of you are encouraged by that? You know what I mean? I'm encouraged. I've got both hands up. You know what I mean? I'm encouraged because I'm a failure, you know, but on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice, wow, and putting our trust and our faith in him. At work this week, Pastor E mentioned it, you know, um, we went through the book of James, and in James, James's big thing was faith without works is what? is dead. He says, don't tell, he says, don't tell me you've got faith. I don't want to hear it. Show me. Show me. And, um, and, and, and here's the big thing. You see, when you look at this list, you think, oh, Hebrews 11, it's pointing to these people. We should look to these people, should we? Who do we? You see, I'm finishing now. As great as those who are on this list may be, the admonition isn't to look to them. It's to look at them, right? But who do we look to? Sis, go to that next slide for me. Spoiler alert, and everybody knows. See? Stay focused on who? Therefore, um, Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we just looked at them in chapter 11, right? It says, who by faith, and this is the amplified version. Listen to this. It's so, it's, so, it's so good. Who by faith have testified to the truth of God's absolute faithfulness. Oh, ain't got time. Stripping off every unnecessary weight. Now, this is our encouragement you'd be like okay i want something practical to do you're talking about me they're dead and gone but we are still here what do we now do he says look stripping off every unnecessary weight and the sin which so easily and cleverly entangles us ever been entangled in sin even since becoming a christian again i've got both hands up you know what i'm saying let us run with endurance 
an active persistence, the race that is set before us. How many of you know we all got a race to run? You know what I mean? And, if you were, and, and who gets in a race without the desire to win it? Verse 2, looking, notice, away from all that will distract us, focusing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Notice the first incentive for our belief. You know, it's because Jesus worked in your life. It's because Jesus called you. It's because Jesus spoke to you and opened the eyes of your understanding at the beginning. And in order to get to the end, ultimately, he's the one that's going to carry you there, but you've got to keep your eyes on him. Otherwise, you're going to get distracted and you're going to go to the left and you're going to end up going to the right. You're going to end up going backwards. You're going to end up drifting. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Remember, Peter was in the boat and he was good when he stepped out and he walked on the water as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus. But as soon as he, he started to roar the wind and roar the waves, he began to what? He began to sink. We've got to keep our eyes on Jesus, the one who brings our faith to maturity. This is a long-term thing. See, who, what is challenging your faith right now? What might you be tempted to go back to? False religion? Hebrew Israelites are on it. You know what I'm saying? Pan-Africanism? Yo, sounds very tempting. God forbid you started off in a Christian home and you end up in Islam, like many you know, Caribbeans and Africans are when they go to prison. And then you end up in a place where you don't even know what you're doing. You take your shahada, you become a Muslim, shave your head. And then a year down the road, you're like, bro, I never really thought this through, you know. And then you want to come out. Well, true Islam says there's a, there's a, the, the, the death penalty is on your head now. I, I, I'm, sorry for, I'm sorry for Andrew Tate. I'm sorry for Sneeko. These guys both converted to Islam without knowing what they were doing. And now they can't come out. If they come out, it's peak for them. God forbid. What, what, what are you tempted to, to be drawn to? Criminal activity? Raving and the unholy trinity? The combination of alcohol, ungodly music and promiscuity? Sex, drugs and rock and roll? <laughs> Whatever it might be that might be drawing you away, you know, don't be like the dog who returns to its vomit. Imagine dog throws up and there's vomit and you think, oh, and the dog walks around and you think, bro, I'm hungry and can't find nothing. Oh, here's something to eat. Or, to the, or, or like the pig to its wallowing again in the mire. Can you see the... One is... And, and you know what? And to be fair, you know what? I feel tempted to go back to my old life sometimes. You know what I mean? But I know there's nothing there for me. I might enjoy myself for five minutes. Oh, I ain't got time. But I just want to make sure that you know that I'm not pointing a finger at you. You know, if I do, there's four pointing back at me. Whatever it might be, don't... Don't start drinking from the toilet when you've when you got the kitchen tap. Don't go back to the old when you have the new, that which is better. And the key is keeping your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher or perfecter of your faith. Now, obviously, I'm tempted to say more, but I'm going to wrap up now. Um, <coughs> can I encourage you, as I am examining myself, to examine yourself? You know what I'm saying? And for me, you know, my New Year's resolution is less is more. 
Um, so let's go to that last one for me, please. I hope what I've done is I've whet your appetite for this book that is the book of Hebrews and its message that is to keep moving and not turn back. Keep moving, keeping your focus on Jesus. Amen. I'm going to invite the, the, the guys to come up, the girls to come up. I'm going to pray as they come up. Father, this new year, um, resolutions abound, um, whether it's on about finan- uh, finances or food, the intake of it or, or not, fitness, these are good, Lord, but a focus on faith should be primary. Um, Lord, we're not going to make it unless we keep our focus on Jesus. And Lord, help us to realize the Christian walk, is a, it's not a sprint, but it's a 26-mile marathon. Uh, and throughout 2024 and beyond, Lord, may we continue to encourage one another as we see the day approaching, as it says in Hebrews 10. Please help us to fight the good fight, to finish the race, and to keep the faith by the grace of Christ. And it's in his name and for his fame we pray. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.